From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, Thursday, March 30th is baseball opening day. We'll celebrate with a report on the successful drive to bring a union to minor league players. But first, a big strike in LA and a big victory for minimum wage workers. That's coming up in a minute. 30,000 of the lowest paid workers in the LA public schools won a huge victory last week after a three-day strike that shut the schools for 420,000 students. They got a 30% pay increase. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. He's reported on the labor movement in LA for a long time, first for the LA Weekly and also for the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today in Washington, DC. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, we're talking here about public school custodians, food service workers, bus drivers, teachers, aides. A lot of them have been getting the minimum wage, which right now in Los Angeles is $15. They joined a union. They got a 30% pay increase. How did they do it, especially since school strikes are incredibly disruptive? Parents not only need to find childcare for those days, but the schools also provide meals for the kids. All LA public school students from kindergarten through 12th grade get free breakfast and free lunch at school. So the union and the workers could easily be accused of you know, selfishly putting their own pay above the welfare and needs of poor students. How did the union counteract this argument? Well, these are workers whose average annual income is about $25,000. And there is a large population in Los Angeles, particularly parents of the kids in the public school system, 80% of whom, if not slightly more, uh, are Latino, uh, who really are kids of the LA working class. The LA working class, much of it subsists on the same level of income that these school employees uh, subsist on. And the common ailment throughout Los Angeles and Southern California, I mean, if you were asked 50 years ago, everyone would have said smog, 30 years ago, traffic. This year, unaffordable housing, which takes up half your income. And people understood that people could not survive on what the LA Unified School District was paying it's non-teaching employees. So that was a big part of the fact that uh, there was a lot of public support for the union. That, that was key. And then the union also you know, set up its own food distribution centers because they were acutely aware that this would uh, close down the uh, breakfast and lunch services that the schools provided for three days. So they they tried directly to address that. And, you know, so this was a strike that really had, I think, significant public support, particularly among parents of the kids in, in L.A. schools. Yeah, the um, the picket line at the elementary school in my neighborhood, in the middle class part of West L.A., it's 50 or 60 people out in the rain, and a lot of them were parents with their kids on the picket line. It's very inspiring, frankly, to see. Yes, and when you're a kid on a picket line, that's a, a very good educational experience. So, you know, I, might, I could argue 
that uh, education actually was uh, distinctly furthered during the strike. I want to talk about the tactic of a three-day strike. They struck last week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then returned to work on Friday without a contract. Usually workers strike until they win something or until they give up. This time they went back to work without any resolution. Tell us about that tactic. Well, when your strike uh, actually compels hundreds of thousands of non-striking workers to make the kind of adjustments in childcare that, that this strike caused, uh, a more strategic way of striking could be, let's go for three days to show, uh, you know, we're united, we can close down the schools, the teachers are striking with us, but we understand the public inconvenience that this causes. And it compelled, clearly compelled the district to get more serious about bargaining. And it uh, also compelled uh, someone who I think didn't really need the compulsion, and that was Mayor Karen Bass. We'll get to uh, that in just a minute. Okay. <laughs> First, I want to go back to one thing that you said in passing. The teachers honored the picket line. That turned out to be a huge factor. Well, of course. I mean, that made clear uh, a, that uh, the workers had support beyond uh, their own union. It made clear that the schools were definitively closed. And it really signaled, I think, the support of the entire labor movement in Los Angeles. Uh, there are uh, a little under 30,000 of the bus drivers and cafeteria workers and teachers' aides in their union. There are a little over 30,000 teachers in LAUSD, and there are 800,000 union members in LA County, which is a big chunk of folks. And I think it, it signaled a, a greater level of support than the union could have attained if had it only gone out by itself. Another key element in the strategy is militant picket lines at schools everywhere in the city. This wasn't just like one factory's on strike with a picket line. Every neighborhood had picket lines of 50 or 60 or 70 people. Well, that's really the advantage of this strategy. If you lived in a company town back in days of yore and the steel mill closed, well, everyone could feel it because every, uh, you know, every adult male in that town probably worked for the steel mill. This is a, a, another model, but it, it brings the strike home. It, it shows that there is rank and file solidarity. And it's a way to get, as you mentioned, the people in your neighborhood and other neighborhoods to come out and show their support. So all of this conveys a very strong message to the school district uh, that it had better get serious about negotiating. Let's talk about the union. This is SEIU Local 99. What's its place in the larger history of the rise of Latino organized labor in LA? Well, this has long been one of the unions in LA uh, that's been key uh, to really the revival of unionism in LA, which up until the late 1980s was relatively moribund. And at the same time, the largest unions in LA, which had been unionized manufacturing facilities, aerospace, auto, et cetera, most of those facilities had either closed up altogether or shrunk to the point that those unions had become uh, really barely populated. And so it was the rise of these unions, of the uh, restaurant, hotel workers unions, of the janitors unions that really jump-started both uh, the, the sort of reunization dynamic in Los Angeles in the 1990s and provided the political foot soldiers for really turning Los Angeles, if I can use a color uh, metaphor, 
from a, a purple area to a blue area. And it's really, I would argue, really is key to the leftward movement of California over the last 30 years. You also mentioned that LA's may new mayor, Karen Bass, uh, joined in the negotiation. She, of course, started as a community organizer in South LA. Yeah, no, her background is clearly one that was uh, always been part of the Labor Progressive Alliance in Los Angeles. So it was kind of a natural for uh, uh, Mayor Bass or Karen, as those of us who've known her for decades call <laughs> yes. her, uh, to intervene. And she did the usual thing of having the uh, school district officials in one room and the union officials in another room. And shuttling back and forth uh, so that uh, the, the accord, which potentially could be reached, in fact, was reached. And it was Mayor Bass who announced the settlement with the head of the union and the head of the school district standing next to her uh, on uh, on Friday. And of course, we remember that in 2019, there was a historic teacher strike in Los Angeles that was a magnificent success. And it was based on a massive community mobilization. The union spent over a year meeting with parents groups, meeting with students groups, talking to them about what they wanted in their schools. So when it came time for the strike, the students supported the teachers, the families supported the teachers, and that made it possible to have a really impressive victory. And everybody, I think, remembers the 2019 community mobilization that led to the teachers union success. Yes, this really began as a tactic or a strategy, I should say, in the 2012 teacher strike in Chicago, where uh, the main issue in many ways was opposing then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel's closure of 50 inner-city schools, which really upset parents and the community, to particularly on uh, the south side and the west side of Chicago, which are largely Black and Latino areas. The union really made common cause with the parents. And this has become increasingly a strategy that this kind of union uh, will, will take. Uh, the, the name for this, given to it by uh, some uh, labor historians at Georgetown here in Washington, D.C., is bargaining for the common good. And that's largely what you saw in the 2019 strike in Los Angeles. And in a way, it's partly replicated in the strike just uh, that was concluded last week in Los Angeles. Bargaining for the common good. Elsewhere in the news from California, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that the state has signed a $50 million contract with a nonprofit generic drug manufacturer to produce insulin that will be available to Californians at a cost of $30 per dose, which is what it costs to manufacture and distribute it. Private companies generally charge about 10 times that level. That's called big pharma. Why don't other states do what California is doing here? Why not the federal government? Well, that was what I was pondering in a, in a, a piece I wrote in uh, the American Prospect last week. And that was what has gone on in California is really kind of a, a, a new adaptation of something called the public option, which the Yale political scientist Jacob Hacker came up with and which made it into the Obama administration's uh, original legislation establishing the Affordable Care Act. There it was create a government-run insurance company where people would buy in to essentially what was Medicare, but it would cost less and be more comprehensive than the private uh, insurance deals. 
thereby compelling them uh, to reduce their prices or maybe even go out of business. Joe Lieberman of not sainted memory uh, uh, refused to be the 60th vote uh, on that. And so it never it never was enacted. But what I think California and uh, all credit here to Gavin Newsom, the governor, what California has done is created a public option in the manufacture and distribution of drugs. I calculated what it cost the state, which is it was a hundred million dollar appropriation, which compared to the state's annual budget, which was about $240 billion, I calculated to be a little less than 120th of 1% of what the state was spending uh, this year. And, uh, you know, other states don't have $100 million probably to uh, throw around like this, but uh, they also have considerably smaller populations than California. So I think if they look at this and it only costs them one twentieth or even just one tenth of one percent of their <laughs> annual expenditures, it would be something worth doing. And so I, you know, said, well, look at the dem- big democratic other states, New York, Illinois, with democratic legislatures and democratic governors. This might be something you should consider doing. And you know, it's I think something that Joe Biden might. Uh, you can't obviously with a Republican House couldn't get it through now, but it may be a nice thing for him to add to the things he's going to run on in 2024. And it seems to me to make perfect sense as one of the next iterations of, uh, you know, Democratic capital D policy. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Good to be here. This Thursday, March 30th, is baseball's opening day. Most of the baseball news at this point has been about the rule changes intended to speed up the game to attract younger fans. And of course, the news is always about the game's overpaid superstars. Mike Trout of the LA Angels has a $426 million contract. Juan Soto of the Padres just turned down a $440 million offer from Washington. But for a century, Thousands of young players have lived with low wages, overcrowded housing, and all-night rides in uncomfortable buses in order to play in baseball's minor leagues, hoping eventually to make it to the majors. They never complained in public, but this year their lives are changing because they organized a union. For that story, we turn to Kelly Candale and Peter Dreyer. Kelly was a union organizer for 15 years. He's written for the LA Times, the New York Times, and The Nation. And he produced the documentary film, A League of Their Own, about his mother's years in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Kelly, welcome. Great to be here. And Peter Dreyer teaches politics at Occidental College. He's the author of several books, including Baseball Rebels, The Players, People, and Social Movements That Shook Up the Game and Changed America published in 2022. Peter, welcome back. Thanks. Well, major league players for a long time have been represented by the Players Association and collective bargaining with the billionaires who own the baseball teams. But now the minor league players have a union and for the first time are negotiating a contract. Let's start with what life was like for the 5,000 minor league ball players who are employed by one of the 30 major league teams mm-hmm. What has it been like to be a minor league player? 
Well, the bottom line is they lived lives of desperation. They got paid less than the minimum wage. They didn't get paid for spring training. They didn't get paid for the off season. They only got paid for the, the weeks of the summer, the spring and the summer. And even then, they, they probably made no more than an average, about 15000 a year. They often lived in uh, overcrowded apartments with five or six players crowding into an apartment. And um, they didn't have enough money for food. A couple of them told us that uh, it wasn't unusual for them to have two meals a day, and one of those would be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> and then they could get traded uh, or move up and down uh, in different minor league teams over the country, and then they'd lose their, their, their rent deposit. And for someone making so little money, that was a big deal. And in fact, housing was probably the major issue that they were uh, upset about when the union started and when they were talking about organizing. You know, there's this glamour about being a professional athlete, but if you just graduated from high school or you just spent two or three years in college and then you go into the minor leagues, uh, you're in for a rude awakening. You're drafted by a team. That team essentially owns you for a certain period of time, five, six, seven years, according to the, the, the contract. So contrary to what most people can do is if they're not being treated well or, or paid right by one employer, they can go across the street, presumably, and, and offer their services to another. That's not the case in the, in the minor leagues or the major leagues. Well, everybody for decades has said minor league players could never be organized into a union. And that seemed to be true. But why did it seem to be true? Uh, you know, Marvin Miller was the uh, key organizer of the major league baseball players union. He was a genius, and he defied the odds after he was hired in 1966, and he turned this uh, paper tiger of an organization, the Major League Baseball Players Association, into probably the strongest union in the country. But even Marvin Miller said, you know, about 10 years ago, the minor leaguers would never organize a union. He said they had stars in their eyes and that they would be too afraid to lose their place in the pecking order and risk not getting into the majors. So what did it take to change this situation? Well, like any social movement, it took three things. It took terrible conditions, which we've already discussed. It took the uh, owners to make a lot of mistakes, and the owners made a lot of mistakes. Now, people think that the ruling class is so smart, but in this case, they were pretty stupid. They made a lot of errors. One of them was they got Donald Trump to sign a bill in Congress that uh, basically exempted minor league teams and players from the federal minimum wage. And that outraged the players, you know. And, and what was the name of this bill? I love the name of this bill. It's called the Save America's Pastime Act. And the, <laughs> the theory was that. that minor league and major league teams would, couldn't afford to pay decent living wages to their minor leaguers. And if they did, they'd go under. Of course, 24 out of the 30 major league owners are billionaires. And major league baseball is making more money now than they've ever made. So the owners made a lot of mistakes. During the pandemic, they, the major league uh, commissioner, Rob Manfred, canceled the minor league season and left 5,000 people out of work and didn't provide them with any compensation. And then he added insult to injury by he basically cut off 42 teams, each with about 30 people in it, including a team in Burlington, Vermont, where Bernie Sanders uh, lives, which made him the, uh, the enemy of major league baseball. The third thing is that they had a couple of agitators and organizers who did a great job, who uh, quietly 
went around talking to minor league players. One of them was a former minor league pitcher named Garrett Brocious, who uh, sued Major League Baseball for violating the minimum wage laws. Another was this incredible guy named Harry Marino, who had been a pitcher in um, Division Three baseball at Williams College. He was also a lawyer, and he, he led the campaign for uh, the minor league. So all those ingredients came together. And for the first time, the major league players union decided it would be a good investment to help organize the minor leagues. Their contribution made a big difference. You know, I, I think just the, the, the general feeling in the country at large towards unions was was also a, a really important factor. When we talked to the players that were in the minor leagues and part of this organizing drive, there wasn't any hesitancy about uh, the benefits of a union for these minor league players. And I, I think that is in part because they've seen other young people, you know, at Starbucks, at, at REI, at Amazon, step up and say, you know, we don't have to accept this. You know, the idea of a union is a good thing. It's good for the major leaguers. It's good for the minor leaguers. It's good for a Starbucks worker. It's good for us. But this is not like organizing, say, Amazon at Staten Island, where 6,000 people go to work at the same place at the same time every day. This is this is uh, 120 teams all over the country, many in small towns and cities. Uh, they're on the road half of the season. They're not working at all many months of the year. It seems like that would make organizing them a lot harder than organizing as we traditionally understand it in industrial sites. Yeah, it's not not like standing out in front of the the ballpark with leaflets. You know, <laughs> a lot of a lot of this was done online. It was done with new technologies through texting, through Zooms. I mean, you know, some of it was sort of old-fashioned finding leaders, finding the people who were courageous, connecting those up with, with uh, other people who who would be interested, giving those people assignments to track down other people. But a lot of it was uh, a new style. You know, same with the uh, Starbucks workers. If you ask them how they communicated with each other, it was on text, it was on Zoom, uh, because they're, they're across the country in thousands of different workplaces too. So mm -hmm. I think they were very strategic about it. Uh, we, we quoted Trevor uh, Hildenberger, who was one of the, the main organizers, and he said, when I talk to other players, you know, at the batting cage or on the bus or in the locker room, I made sure that I didn't whisper. <laughs> I didn't want anybody to think that what we were doing was dangerous or wrong. So they were thoughtful, uh, psychologically thoughtful, organizationally, and, and used these, these new technologies as well. They also made a very smart move. They hired a... Uh a Latino ball player, former minor league player, to reach out to the other Latino players, both American Latino and those from the Dominican Republic and Central America and Latin America, because they're now about a third of all the players in professional baseball. We are used to the owners facing union organizing campaigns among, among their workers of using every tool in the very large anti-union toolbook to prevent organizing and to fire organizers and, and then to refuse to recognize unions and force elections and then challenge elections. But last September, the owners recognized the union without a fight, without demanding an NLRB election, which the law entitles them to do. Why do you think they threw in the towel right away? So for one thing, they just the major league players had just gone through a lockout where the owners went on strike for 99 days. 
and they had to cancel part of the spring training. And the public and the media really took the sides of the players against these greedy billionaire owners. And I think they weren't prepared for another big battle like that. They also knew that a lot of the major league players were on the side of the minor league union idea. Um, a lot of them wore wristbands at games saying they supported the minor league uh, players. And we interviewed uh, Clayton Kershaw and, um, and some other players, Walker Bueller and Gavin Lux in the clubhouse at Dodger Stadium. And they were very supportive of, uh, of the union. And I think that was representative of what was going on. So I think the owners thought that they were going to lose anyway because the players we're going to be able to get more than a, a best. They're going to get more than a majority to sign cards. And the truth is, it wasn't going to cost them that much money. And that's what's so outrageous about this is these are some of the richest people in the country. These owners paying a decent wage and um, improving their living conditions was not going to break the bank. And whatever happened to that class action lawsuit that accused the uh, owners of, of violating a minimum wage laws? The lawsuit was filed in 2014, and it didn't get settled until 2022. Wow. But two things happened. One is because their biggest grievance was the housing problems that they faced, every major league team agreed to pay for the minor leaguers' housing uh, as part of the settlement and as part of the effort to co-opt the union drive. Um, and secondly, uh, Gary Brocious, the lawyer, won a settlement of $185 million wow. to pay uh, current and former major league players for having been underpaid under federal minimum wage laws. And so, you know, the owners uh, knew that public opinion was against them. These are among the most ferocious anti-union people in the country in many ways. But, you know, they knew they'd lost and they were trying to cut their losses. Where do we stand in the contract negotiations right now? There was essentially a, a news blackout on on the negotiations with the, with the minor leagues for their first contract. But talking to people behind the scenes, we suspect that the key issues are going to be housing, as, as uh, Peter pointed out. I think one of the key demands is going to be to establish a foundation for pensions for minor league players. Uh, some of these guys spend four, five, six maybe even seven years in the minor leagues, still hoping to get their shot. So having a vested pension is, is I think, going to be a, a crucial issue. It's interesting how many players that we talk to talk to us about working conditions, the state of their locker rooms, you know, where they stay when they're on the road, what, you know, what kinds of hotels, all the places where if an owner wanted to diminish their, their costs would, would, would do it by getting a cheap hotel or cheap transportation or what have you. So all of those things are going to be uh, more uniform. Uh, obviously, getting paid during spring training, all of the, the times where teams ask a player to go to a training camp or spend two or three weeks somewhere where it might not be the season, but they're going there for training or, or rehab or something. All of those, those places, they're going to have to be paid which the, the teams did not want to do in the past. Those were all places where owners uh, saved a lot of money on, on uh, not having to pay those minor league players. Uh, most of the minor league teams are owned in part by the major league teams that are their parent company, so to speak. So while the minor league teams are responsible for the ballpark and other stuff like that, 
the major leagues really nickel and dime them. Still a lucrative thing to do to own a minor league team, but it, so it was really up to the major league teams to provide the funding for the kinds of for the pensions and the housing and the salaries that the minor league players get or don't get. So minor league baseball players for decades, no one believed they could be organized into a union, and suddenly they have been organized into a union. What are the lessons here for uh, for the rest of America? Well, one of the key lessons I think is that places that had previously been considered uh, immune to union organizing, it can happen and happen fairly quickly. But uh, a lot of hard work needs to take place uh, to make that happen. I think there is a change in consciousness about unions. I mean, we've seen recent polls that indicate that the popularity of unions is at its highest point ever. It's 65, you know, approaching 70%. And, and part of the reason for that is, is because of poor working conditions and what's happened in the economy. You know, that people are realizing that a union is going to be good for us, good for our future, good for our families. So I think the, the main lesson is, is that when you have courageous people, when you have an institutional structure that is supportive, uh, big things can happen. Everything's impossible until it's not. Everything's impossible until it's not. Kelly Candale and Peter Dreyer wrote the cover story for The Nation, How Minor League Ballplayers Won a Union. It is a terrific piece of reporting. You can read it at thenation.com. You can read it on opening day, Thursday, March 30th. Thank you, Kelly. You're welcome. Great to be here. And thank you, Peter. Great, John. Good to see you again. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>